Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. And uh, the silver spoon crowd may love carbon taxes, but the folks putting food on those spoons are the ones being crushed by it. Will there ever be justice for the families killed aboard Flight 752? We talked to a grieving widow. And Pornhub's being sued by a number of women in the United States. We'll talk to the crime of human trafficking and to someone who survived it, warning how quickly it can happen and how hard it is to escape. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? If I went back, if, if... When Dr. Tam started telling us about the potential uh, of the concerning news coming out in January, uh, coming out of China, um, we would have immediately turned around and started to procure uh, lots of PPE because that scramble in the beginning of of, uh, the pandemic in March and April, uh, where there were real concerns about frontline health workers who were reusing masks and having to bring them home and wash them, that was something that I, I would have loved to have been able to avoid. Regrets, our Prime Minister, oh, he should have many, all right, and a lack of PPE, just the tip of the iceberg. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, December 17th, and here we go in the final stretch with the uh, kiddies finishing up school tomorrow. So a lot of them have the big Christmas concert tonight. Of course, not live in person. It's all going to be by Zoom. And um, today, the Toronto board, as you've been learning, uh, sent home a note and all the work that they want the kids to have just in case school shut down after the holiday. And the TDSB says, yeah, this is just precautionary. But, you know, then you hear from the Ontario Hospital Association calling for a four-week lockdown. And Mayor Tory and Dr. Davila have made no secret that they want more lockdowns. So it's kind of hard not to see the writing on the wall. I mean, the question then is, should schools be shut down? Or is that justified? Because the Toronto Star, I think these numbers tell a very important story. They just got their hands on new numbers from Ontario's asymptomatic COVID-19 testing program that they have been doing in the hot zones. And out of 3,600 tests they did in York, Peel, and Toronto, out of 3,600 tests, 57 cases, asymptomatic cases were found, which confirms what most doctors have been saying, and that is students aren't getting it in school. They're bringing it in from the outside. So it is our behavior. It is not community spread. That matters. So we're going to talk about that. But I want to talk about the prime minister musing about his regrets, uh, which he did in his year-end interview. Um, And I think we should add a few because there are many we should add to that list because I think He should regret that his government, you know, should have ordered more rapid testing and gotten it in place faster because then we wouldn't have to talk about shutting down the schools. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't have to because every school in Ontario would be rapid testing the kids and the teachers and further protecting them. Right. So that that should be a regret. Here's what else our dear old leader should regret. He should regret ignoring his own scientists who warned him in December that the virus was coming. He should regret that his government shut down the pandemic warning system in 2019. I think that's a pretty good regret to have. He should also regret that his very inept health minister didn't bother to check for supplies. She told us we had. 
And maybe she shouldn't have been telling Canadians that this whole thing was, you know, low risk and we're ready. And I think Trudeau can also regret trusting China while it lied to the world as we handed off 16 tons of the only PPE we had left. I mean, that would be a, a big regret. But he should also really, really regret flying off to Africa and all over the Caribbean. Remember, for weeks at a time weeks he was gone, not just as rail lines across his country were shut down, absolutely crippling Canada, but because while he was throwing away hundreds of millions of dollars trying to buy votes for this failed seat at the United uh, Nations Security Council, he could and should have been using that time to, I don't know, maybe get ahead of this virus that was clearly nowhere on his radar. Those are just but in those first. But in those first months, uh, I think we needed to be readier, and we're going to make sure that going forward, Canada is never caught without uh, equipment to protect our, our frontline workers again. That's certainly something that we can we can focus on. But there's lots of things we've learned. But one of the things we learned through the, the scramble on PPE was to be early on vaccines, and that's how we ended up in such a great situation on vaccines. Mm-hmm. He may regret that claim. Because he's not ahead of anyone else, not ahead of any other country. And, you know, we're seeing the vaccines dribble in in bits and pieces ahead of schedule right now. But he cannot claim to be in a great situation because the government, you know, that got these vaccines didn't order them till August. And it was only after that deal fell through with China. And why any deal at all was struck with China, given their behavior, their lies about the virus, their ruthless abuse of the two Michaels, the retaliation against our canola farmers. I mean, why this government felt it at all appropriate, let alone smart, or that they could trust China to do anything, you know, with this British regime, that for sure should be on his regret list. So to claim that we're in a a great situation on vaccines is a claim not yet proved, because we know that hundreds of millions in the United States, the United Kingdom, and a lot of other countries are going to be vaccinated way, way before the majority of us here in Canada are. So if vaccinating 35 million Canadians one year from now is considered a great situation, I regret to inform the prime minister that he is indeed delusional. So those would be my regrets or should be his regrets. All right, we got a very busy show tonight. We're going to speak with a man who lost his wife and child who were on flight 752, the plane shot out of the sky by Iran. And that is almost a year. That was this year. Believe it or not, that was this year. And so we're almost marking that anniversary in January, January 8th. And he's no closer. None of those families are any closer to justice. And pretty much been abandoned by the prime minister who who personally promised the man I'll speak to his support. And he's heard nothing from them. And so, you know, we said that we would not make the same mistakes as we did with the Air India bombing victims' families. And, you know, I know everyone is, is you know, very distracted with COVID, but we owe these families the support that, that they were very much promised about. All right, so the sudden 240% spike to the Trudeau government's carbon tax may play well in urban centers, you know, where a lot of folks just shrug off the increase to things like groceries and heating costs as a way that they can help Mother Earth. But, you know, if you're the people that are producing the food we eat, you know, anyone in the agricultural sector across this country, 
then this $15 billion tax grab, you know, they know how destructive it is because they're paying the brunt of it. And farmers, you know, we're talking farmers who have to heat their barns to keep their animals from freezing to death in winter or those who have to maybe dry grain and things like, you know, what you put in your bread. They're already paying thousands of extra dollars with the existing tax. And so this increase means they're going to be paying thousands more. And not only can they not afford it, but it makes it so hard for them to compete in the world. So, you know, the Silver Spoon climate change crowd um, you know, they might like this. It's the least of their worries, but certainly those putting the food on that spoon are going to pay the price. Keith Curry is with the Canadian Farmers Association. He's the second vice president. Good to have you. Yeah, good to be here, Alex. What did I get wrong there or what did I get right? I mean, is that about accurate where the city city dwellers just don't get this? Well, it's not their fault. People don't understand uh, the way agriculture works is we're price takers, not price setters. So when you go to shop in your local retail store or grocery store, if there's an added cost because of the carbon tax, you know, there's a nickel put on every product so the consumer pays. With respect to agriculture, we don't have that option. We are price takers, not price setters. So whenever there's an increase in cost, we somehow have to absorb it. And you're right about the increase, uh, especially for heating li- uh, livestock facilities, uh, grain facilities uh, that have to dry their, their grains down to be used. We figure just in 2020 alone, it's going to be at least an 8% hit to our net income uh, just with the increased cost. And if you fast forward that to 2030, when this $170 a ton comes in, uh, just to put it in perspective, every acre of corn that's grown in Ontario or in Canada is going to cost an extra $50 an acre just for the carbon tax. So that's money that we can't recoup. And, you know, all the services that are provided to us uh, charge a surtax that we have to absorb. So it is it is going to be quite costly. And, you know, we live in a northern climate. We, we don't have a lot of options here. So um, it's not that farmers aren't willing to do their part for climate change, but, um, you know, we, we want to be a partner, not a victim. Yeah, that, that's a pretty extraordinary um, um, cost, well, I mean, when you add it up. And, and this is to assume, of course, that they're not raising it any higher. And we already know that they have said, yes, we'll continue increasing it until we hit the targets. Um, I think the uh, parliamentary budget officer said that they would have to increase it to $289. So you can imagine how, how detrimental that would be. But can you give me an example, Keith, of what the cost would be, let's say, to a grain farmer who has to dry their, their crop? Because once it's harvested, they can't just leave it or it goes moldy and rots. I mean, they have to dry that out. How much would it cost uh, to do something like that? Yeah, so you're absolutely right, Alex. We have to dry the the grains down to uh, a storable uh, moisture level. That's what we do when we dry. So what has to be, you know, for corn, for example, needs to be at 15% moisture total uh, in order for it to, to store in a stable in a stable way. So depending on 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 the fall, last fall was a very wet fall, so the the crops came off much much wetter than normal. So it took a lot more drying. So it, it'll vary from year to year. But as I mentioned, we we know that. Uh, we're looking at, you know, with this new increase, we're looking at close to 12% extra in cost alone just for the carbon tax. So it's going to depend on the, you know, on the size of your operation as well uh, as to how much that's actually going to cost. But, you know, 12% is 12%. And that's money that's coming out of my pocket to go directly to a carbon tax, which is not going back into uh, climate change initiatives. It's going into general coffers. Yeah, right. And certainly, um 
old time farming, which is generally a generational thing passed down from family to family, it becomes a whole lot harder to do and a lot less um, worth it given what they're up against. Because, you know, farming at the best of times, you're relying uh, on Mother Nature to give you a good you know, yield um, and and help you out. And that's not always guaranteed. And so it's already got its challenges and, and no one should be emailing me saying, well, if we had climate change standards, no, it's not about that. Weather's not climate change, but you know, it, it's already tough enough. And so I have to think a lot of farmers are looking at this and saying it's not worth it anymore. No. And, and we've just come through an, an eight month period where uh, everyone's under stress and, you know, agriculture is pretty proud of the fact that we were able to keep uh, the grocery stores full of food and we kept the processing lines going and we kept our production up and, and really one of the there's a couple of variables that we have no control of one is what happens uh, on trade markets and the other one is mother nature and you're absolutely right when she gets angry we, we have no control as we all know so um, that that's a variable that we cannot control but we are able to use tools like drying of crops for example to make sure that we we have storable products to process here in, in, you know you look at Ontario alone, uh, we are the second largest food hub in North America. Um, you know, some 850,000 jobs are actually in mm-hmm. the agri-food system. So that's a, that's, that's a big business. That's, that's a big economic driver, not only for Ontario, but for the entire country. So as I mentioned, we're looking to be partners in this, not, not victims. And how do we work with the, with the government, the federal government, to, uh, to make sure that we are uh, being enhanced to do more than than uh, we are now on the climate change front, and and that's not the way this is all playing out. It's just uh, it's just a tax, and uh, we're all we're all up for paying our fair share of taxes. But this is very unfair because we don't get it back. They talk about yeah. being net, net neutral with these rebate checks, but we don't get rebate. I tell them keep the rebate check, give me the break on the on the carbon tax. Yeah, no kidding. Because not only does it drive up costs on everything, be it uh, you know the the costs to uh, manage um, and dry crops and stuff like that, then you have to pay extra for the gas to haul it down to the warehouses to, to get it to market. So there's costs all the way down that continue to go up and then they get p- passed on to the consumer. So, you know, if you're a person on a fixed budget and you want some decent food because no one does, you know, better farming of, um, you know, fruits and vegetables than I think Ontario farmers, but I mean, it all generally falls onto the backs of, of everyday working people. You're absolutely right, and and you know as as I mentioned, we just came. You know, we've been we've been going through eight months of this pandemic, but people have rediscovered their kitchens and rediscovered love for local food, and they desperately want to support locally grown products. Um, you know, so how do we how do we go forward without hindering the, those buying opportunities? Uh, because the price has to go up in order to make any money. And to your point, we're being you know. It's not a comparable market when we look at, at our U.S. counterparts or our, our other trade partners like China, like the European Union. Right. You know, they aren't they aren't having carbon tax imposed on what they're doing. So we're not on a level playing field in that regard. And and, and if our production goes down because people go out of business, uh, that only drives up the cost of products. And so, you know, it, it makes sense from an economic standpoint to keep us in business, to keep people working, uh, mm-hmm. to keep the economy flowing. And and uh, you know, by doing things like, like imposing a carbon tax that really doesn't make sense, um, that's not helpful. It's not. And it also makes us uh, not able to compete because the U.S., Australia, other countries just don't do this. And so we're just pricing ourselves right out of the market. 
Exactly, and and you know we uh, we're, we're running on pretty low margins now. In general, generally speaking, throughout all, all sectors of agriculture, uh, our, our margins are quite tight, and and that's not unlike most businesses. But uh, you know, as I say, when something comes along, it's an added expense. And keep in mind, it's not just our direct expenses from these fuels, but yeah. every every business that supports us. So if we have a mechanic in, if we have a welder in, if we have a plumber in, somebody to service our business, they're charging us a surcharge yeah. for, for the extra cost that they're, they're uh, expensing too, right? So uh, it just keeps piling on. And, and uh, but, you know, we're, we're going to keep uh, hammering away at the federal government to uh, see if we can't get some breaks from this. But uh, so far, not so good. Not so good. That is the cost of ideology. Keith, I appreciate you putting it into perspective for us. Absolutely. Thank you, Alex. Keith Curry is with the Canadian Farmers Association. So yes, there are people who will pay and there will people who will champion this, probably not realizing that others are paying the dear cost of this. You know, 2020 has just been a relentlessly cruel year. And I know COVID takes up all of our attention, but we really can't forget the pain and the injustice to those who were murdered on board Ukrainian Flight 752. And this is a plane that was deliberately bombed out of the sky by two surface-to-air missiles fired by Iran. And on board were 174 people. And 138 of those passengers were either Canadian or had ties to this country. And In less than a month, we're talking January 8th, hard to believe, but we marked the one-year anniversary of that terror attack, and Iran still hasn't been punished. And the Liberal government commissioned and have now released an independent report looking into this. It was headlined PS752, The Long Road to Transparency, Accountability, and Justice. And what did it find? Well, nothing shocking. Iran lies. It is not transparent. And because it investigated itself and whitewashed and destroyed the evidence... It will remain unshamed by this carnage that they are guilty of, no matter what they say. And if you're one of the family members left behind looking for justice, it becomes more difficult by the day. Shaheen Mogadam joins me now. He lost his wife of 14 years, Shakiba, and their 10-year-old son, Arastin. He joins us now. Good to have you, Shaheen. Hello, Alex. How are you? Well, you know, I'm, I always marvel at the strength uh, of, of those like yourself who go through such enormous loss, um, especially in a year like this where COVID has taken all the attention. I can't imagine what that has added to this for you, um, you know, whether you're getting the supports. But, I mean, how are you doing? Uh, it's, it's, I would love to become like a disaster. Uh, uh Mentally, financially, mm-hmm. in, in in all aspects, we lost the jobs. Uh, no one, none of us, working since January, because even the the month before it was it Christmas time. So it's about a year that we are we don't have any work, no job. So we're struggling with the financial, and then struggling with the with the suffering, with the loss suffering, and it's painful. And, Every time which I walk even in the house, I talk with the walls, with the, with the pictures. Uh, I smell, I, I even smell them. It, it, I just hope such things don't happen to no one, to no one. It, it shouldn't have happened to you. It shouldn't have happened to your wife and your child or any of those other passengers who are doing nothing more than getting on a plane and to come 
here to Canada, go to college, you know, uh, you reunite with their families. And it did. And, and the one thing is, you guys have been promised, all of you have been promised justice to some degree, but we're dealing with a terror nation um, that is accountable to nobody. Um, do you feel you'll, you'll get justice? Uh, not yet. Yeah, not yet. Not at all. Actually, uh, I have to correct uh, something on, on your, your, your conversation before. Mm-hmm. Because uh, recently I received a, a voice uh, from Anonymous uh, Connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's related to the night that they shot down the, the plane. So it's very clear, it's very uh, transparent that uh, explains everything. First of all, I have to tell that it was three missile. The first one missed the plane and then the the, the second and third one hit the plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I gave that that, that that profile as evidence to RCMP and they have it right now. Uh, I have I had to mention these things uh, to just make it clear. But and, and, about, yeah, go ahead. Okay, but about the justice, no, there is nothing. The government of Canada has no, no any significant achievement, not even significant, it's nothing. They receive nothing. They just come, they, they talk well, they very nice in front of the media, lots of promises. But as you see, after 11 months, they just say that just, just frankly that we don't trust Iran. We don't trust Iran. This is this comes after eleven months. After ten months, they just start forensic team to just investigate regard the regards the in the, the the crash. So I don't know why why they didn't do any anything in 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 real action. Nothing. They're just talking. They're just promises. Uh, nothing more. We didn't got nothing more than that. I know that there are there are there are lawsuits that are moving ahead against the Iranian government. Those things will work their way through the courts. But again, it it doesn't provide, I think, the justice that a lot of you are, are looking for, and that could take a long time. What kind of support of the Air India bombing, which I think is a real dark chapter for this country, is that we did not support the families. Again, you got a lot of the good talk, but we didn't support those families, and they were left very much in time to deal with this on their own. Are you getting any kind of support, be it financial support, um, someone you can talk to? Uh, at the beginning, uh, we received $25,000 mm-hmm. uh, for, for, uh, for, for the crash, each of us. So after that, no. And we, and we received some, some psychotropy session, but at the beginning it was 10. But for me individually, I, I did, Six decision, but on my own, I paid for I, I paid for it, anyway, from my pocket. But uh, I got some about ten session from the government, um, and I have to tell you that those ten session it was like a disaster. Uh, they were not professional. They lack of knowledge. They didn't know how to uh, communicate even with us. So mm-hmm. I didn't like that one. But yes, in total. The government did, and they facilitated, and they gave us ten sessions of trophy. 
I mean, the uh, Prime Minister, you, you spent time with the Prime Minister. He he sat with you and he promised that he'd be there for you. I mean, it's a pretty big promise to make. Um, and that hasn't come through. Still, yes. Uh, even even he, he cried with me for, for at least half an hour. I gave him about uh, four, at least with the, almost 40, 40 t- title on it about everything, about the financial, about the tax, about the... Uh, travel to Iran and bring back the bodies and the corpse and about a lot. They did some of them, but personally, actually, because for 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 a tax relief, I did by my own. So yeah. the government didn't. I just talked to our CRA and then explained the situation. They they asked me for a fill the forms and then the, the it went to the commission and then they decided to related tax. But mm-hmm. this is only a small part. Uh, just your things. I will receive 25000 for a year and then hit by COVID for even for those who have business, they totally die. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's done. Yeah. $24,000 for a year, who can live? Yeah. And, and at this, live? yeah. and at this time of year, you know, it's an exciting time of year, certainly for children, no matter what uh, religion you are or what, what holiday you, you practice. It's a fun time and, of year, but it's a t- it's got to be tough for you at this time of year. I mean, exactly. It's the first, and now yeah. we need support. We need a family support. We need lots of things. And uh, actually, this is not a government problem because it's hit by COVID. So we, yeah. we can't even gather together with the family. So it's, it's getting worse. You know, it, it's hard. Uh, but for, for me, I asked uh, for some one, one time, once I asked a uh, minister about, uh, about the register and uh, about uh, register national day on the calendar for uh, uh, January 8th, because we didn't have such a terrible, horrible incident in, during the history for the, for the Canada, at least for uh, many years ago. So I think, I think the Canadian and especially us, we deserve such a memorial to you just want to mark that day. Don't, yeah, don't don't forget that day. But, Shaheen, uh, do you have anybody you have like? Uh, do you have and some people in your life that give you support, especially around this time of year? Yeah, I have my my parents. I have my cousin, my aunt, my uncle. We all live here. Uh, uh, and, and and they can support me, and they did. Especially my 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 friends. I have. Lots of good friends, and they just they are available any times which I needed them. But mm-hmm. uh, still, there is a problem due to COVID. So yeah. uh, now, just today, we we have uh, we have just conversation with the rest of the families to to just see what can we do for anniversary. Yeah, can we just get together? Can we just invite the families or do something? But in reality, no. This is the this is a big thing. Well, we'll we'll definitely deliver this message. Um, but I thought about you. I, I think about you um, at this time of year, certainly, and and all the others uh, who are uh, deserving of our support, and certainly never to forget what happened. Hard to believe it happened just this year. Shaheen, we'll talk again, and I thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ali. Thank you so much.
That is uh, Shaheen Mogadam. Look, a lot of promises were made, not just to him, but to all of these families by the prime minister, by this country. And if we haven't learned anything out of the Air India bombing of how we treated those families, then we owe it to these families to make sure that they've got the support. Because you can only imagine what they've been through, not just with all of this, with dealing with Iran and dealing with um, the crash itself, but then dealing with it through a pandemic. It's just an impossible thing to get your head around. So we owe it to them to make sure not only that January 8th is never forgotten, but that we get some kind of accountability and justice. All right, here we are on this busy Thursday, and the Montreal company that runs Pornhub has to uh, do a whole lot more than just clean up its act. It's now been served with a $40 million U.S. class uh, class action suit by 40 women in California who claim that the site continues profiting from videos that are published on the site. And among other claims, the suit alleges that the parent company of Pornhub, this is a company called MindGeek, knew or ought to have known that one of its commercial partners regularly used fraud and coercion to get women to appear in videos. And I suspect this is just the start of their problems as the content of the site is, you know, it's not just alleged to have included things like revenge porn, but but also child porn, now exploitation of women who are being trafficked. And talking about the issue of trafficking, we're not talking about porn as a whole, because you it's not illegal to watch porn, but when you're exploiting children and or women, who are being forced to do this, that is a whole other level. Tamara Cherry is with Pickup Communications. I also have Ronell Bruder, who is a trafficking survivor and also founder and executive director of iRise, which is a support organization that helps uh, those who are trafficking survivors. Ladies, thank you for uh, your time today. My pleasure. Let me start with you, Tamara, because, you know, given your background with crime, um, you know, and the recent book that you wrote about human trafficking, there's some, I think some people will conflate the issue, like what's wrong with going on and logging on Pornhub? And if if it's, it's, you know, what I want, that's what I want. But what they're being accused of is not really necessarily that. No, exactly. I think when people think about watching online porn, when, when, when normal law abiding ethical people think about watching online porn, they're, they're thinking about consuming um, videos of con- consenting adults engaging in sex acts on video consensually, meaning they're, consent- they're consenting to the act and they're consenting to being filmed and they're consenting to those videos being shared online. What Pornhub is being accused of is, um, first of all, acting as a platform for videos of rape where there was non-consensual sex acts happening. Uh, videos involving children, and uh, in this class action lawsuit, uh, videos involving women who had gone to a company that was uh, acting as a partner company to Pornhub called Girls Do Porn under the guise of um, posing with their clothes on as models, and then they were coerced into performing sex acts nude, but they were told that it would just be for videos that would be on DVD released in another country. And then those videos were then uploaded onto Pornhub. So they're arguing that Pornhub was aware of this, that they profited, that they, you know, made millions of dollars off of these videos, potentially, and uh, they want some of that money. And not only that, but these women are saying that they contacted Pornhub several times saying, this was not consensual, I do not want this video on there. One of the women even said uh, uh, in a lawsuit last year to the Girls Do Porn 
um, company, the, the partner company, that uh, she would kill herself if the video was not taken down and Pornhub still did not remove the video until there was legal action taken and charges were laid. I think a lot of people look at this, Ronell, as a, as a victimless crime, you know, when a woman gets uh, trafficked. But, and I also think they, they automatically associate it with women in the sex trade. But that is, that is absolutely untrue. No, 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 that's not true at all. In Canada, and when we're talking about domestic sex trafficking here in Canada, over 90% of our victims are Canadians. There are young girls, primarily young girls, because it is a gendered crime. And 75% of them are under the age of 25. So this is young women who are being lured and groomed into the sex industry by pimps, by traffickers. Oftentimes, they're being coerced. They're being told that it might just be, you know, something to help out their boyfriend because they believe this person loves them. They're being told something similar to what Tamara had just said. Oh, you're just going to maybe have to do something that's topless or maybe you don't even have to take your clothes off. And then it ends up leading into something more, into sex acts. And then once they're involved in that, once they're involved with a pimp, with a trafficker, it's almost impossible to leave. Yeah, because I think going in, they think, oh, this this guy likes me, as you said, or, you know, this is going to get me, you know, maybe famous or celebrity or, or if I do this, then, then you know, this person will hang out with me. There's all sorts of women, a reason young women will get swayed into this kind of life. And certainly if a, if a young woman or, or um, is marginalized, then it's it's a lot easier to manipulate them in. But how often do we know the data of how many women are able to escape this? So I don't have any particular data as far as to how many women are able to escape. And I think that would be, it would be hard for us even to be able to guess that because we don't know how many women are currently being trafficked because this is such an underreported crime. So the cases that we do have and statistics that we can't speak of are ones that are police reported. These are cases that have gone, police have been involved, the criminal justice system has been involved. But the majority of cases are never reported. They never get any sort of support. So we don't even know how many women are being trafficked, let alone how many are able to actually escape from it. And and I have to think that for some who do escape and survive, there's a great deal of shame that they must feel. Shame, a credible deal of shame. There's just a stigma. There's such a stigma associated with, I mean, I would say, in general with sex, even just talking about sex, it's, it's highly stigmatized. And now when you're talking about someone who worked within the sex trade, you have that mm-hmm. added layer to it. So it is a lot yeah. of shame and guilt. And, and I should point out, it's not just, um, you know, women or people who are on the margins. Uh, you know, we've heard stories about, you know, high school girls or educated college girls who are who, who you would think should know better. And they find themselves, you know, once they've gone to meet the person that they think uh, is going to take them to dinner, they're in a hotel room and their life is completely turned upside down. So, it, you know, it is a, one of those crimes that um, picks on kind of everyone almost equally. Um, this is something you have spent a lot of time tomorrow writing about, and, and I'll talk about about your book in just a second, but this issue has been in front of the Prime Minister. Uh, and I talked about it the other day on the show. This issue in particular, even with Pornhub, has been in front of the Prime Minister for, for months and nothing mm-hmm. has been done about it, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you look at how many times he was warned since 2016, 2017 that these kinds of things were happening. It makes you wonder how serious this country is about actually stomping out this kind of crime. Yeah, you know what, Alex, it it doesn't surprise me at all, especially when I think back to the years of reporting I did on human trafficking. When I started reporting on human trafficking in early 2008, there had already been 
you know, a unanimously passed private member's bill to create a national strategy uh, on human trafficking. It took several years for that strategy to actually come into existence because it's very easy to say things. It's very much a different thing to act on things. Unfortunately, when politics are involved, sometimes it takes uh, an enormous amount of, of media pressure. And in this case, it came in the in the form of a New York Times mm-hmm. article mm-hmm. Um, to actually put the pressure on. And I think that is a very sad, sad state of affairs, in particular when we're talking about the sexual exploitation of children and of young women and human trafficking. I think it's disgusting. But at the same time, I'm hopeful that some changes will come. And I really hope that the government invests in proper support for the survivors of these sorts of crimes. Because, you know, you were just talking about the shame that is involved uh, with some of the survivors of human trafficking. Consider, you know, being abused, being raped, being trafficked, and then think about that being videotaped and put online and then downloaded and shared tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times. It's, I mean, we've, you, you've done stories too about child pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. I only use that term because that's the, the term in the, the criminal code. Um, and, and how these children have to, you know, live with it into their adult years, knowing that these videos could be out there. The same thing is happening now with, with trafficking victims, rape victims and, and Pornhub. It seems pretty clear that um, they were party to this offense, whether they like to admit it or not. And I, I hope that they are held to account. Well, we have one of the best sex crimes units in the entire world in, in Toronto, and certainly if they had the resources, they could probably do a lot more. It's just there's got to be a will, a political will, certainly to want to stop this. Um, Ranelle, I mean, you are a survivor of this, and you've met with survivors. Um, other than, you know, the shame they feel, do they generally, can they get back on their feet? Yes, yes. I mean, I think it's, it's been proven that with support, um, with the tremendous amount of community support, with therapy, physical, for your physical and your mental health therapy, that survivors are able to rebuild their lives. And many, such as myself, become advocates, um, become voices in this anti-trafficking movement. But there needs to be there needs to be resources available. They need housing. They need mental and physical health support. They need opportunities for, for jobs to go back to school to get an education. So we do need the funding there, which, you know, I'm thankful here in Ontario, we, our government has provided a lot of funding for the anti-human trafficking strategy. And that's yeah, exactly what we need to continue. Yeah, the Ford government has put a lot of money into it. Sadly, COVID has overshadowed almost everything, including things like domestic violence and this. Mm-hmm. But there are going to be girls that either hear this or listen to this or think it's never going to happen. What would your um, warning be for, for, for what mothers and for what uh, women should be on the watch for? I would say for, for mothers, for parents in general, to have these conversations with your children. Don't assume that they know what trafficking is or they know how it happens or don't assume that they could never be a victim of it. Because and you said this perfectly. This is a crime. It's an equal opportunity crime. Young people that, of course, that are marginalized, that are homeless, that are disenfranchised are always going to be more vulnerable to trafficking. But at mm-hmm. its core, it's a vulnerability. It's an exploiting vulnerability. And every young person is vulnerable to some degree, to some extent in their life. And so parents need to know that, that no matter what their socioeconomic status is, their child could be vulnerable to being exploited and trafficked. So have these conversations. And uh, moms and dads, your TikTok that you're letting your kid dance on and all these social media platforms are ground. So that is the warning I always like to put out there. Ladies, thank you very much for your uh, thoughts and your insight into this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Alex. Tamara Cherry has written about this. She's got a new book out called All the Bumpy Pebbles, and it talks specifically about this issue from also a survivor standpoint. So that is available.
if you want to read up on this. And of course, Rochelle Berta is the executive director of IRISE. This is a support system for uh, survivors of trafficking. So there you go if you were looking for some more information. You, of course, can join us live Monday through Friday, 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio.